Welcome to From the Ground Up, insights into crop production productivity from Salford's agronomy expert, Jim Boak. Good morning, it's Jim and Jess with From the Ground Up. Today we have Mike Cobro from Elmafro with us. Mike, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, for those that uh, don't know who I am, uh, since 2002, I've been uh, the weed specialist with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. And then I'm also affiliated with uh, the University of Guelph uh, as an adjunct faculty member. So basically, I, I try and kill weeds for a living, I guess is uh, <laughs> my gig. Today, we're talking about uh, herbicide-resistant weeds. And I know Jim has some questions for Mike this morning. Yes, Mike. Uh you and your colleagues and your staff, you, you guys are on the front line of this battle against weeds. Who's who's winning, humans or the weeds? Oh, well, the weeds will probably always win, right? I think it was like Rick Upfold used to share an office beside me. He was at the University of Guelph for many years, and he's, he would always famously say you can't uh, trick Mother Nature. So the weeds will always adapt and evolve, and it'll always be you know, a constant struggle. But, uh, yeah, the weeds are the weeds are probably winning, but we're at least managing them. Um, so I guess that's how I'll leave that. This is a global problem. It's not just confined to, you know, North America. It's, uh, the whole world is, everywhere there's agriculture, we're, we're battling weeds and resistance to our herbicides. Do you see this as being more serious and more widespread problem than it was five or even 10 years ago? Is, is it getting, are the weeds getting smarter faster? No, I, I don't, um, you know, it's tough to put this stuff into context, but we could, you know, so as you said, you know, weed resistance is a global issue. It's not a new issue either, right? Um, you know, ever since the introduction of herbicides to control weeds, you know, within a, a fairly small time frame, you started to develop, uh, started to see herbicide resistant weeds, right? So dating back even to the 1950s and 1960s. So, I think it's mainly because the the weeds that are resistant uh, to herbicides, uh, you know, specifically glyphosate resistant weeds. And I guess when that technology uh, began in the late 1990s, I think there's a lot of people that felt that, you know, resistance to that herbicide was unlikely. Uh, there's, of course, others that thought, well, no, weeds will eventually, you'll eventually select for a a glyphosate-resistant species. So I, I don't know. Like I don't think it's a worse problem than a, what it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. It's just it's a different problem. And this has been a fairly predictable path, Jim. Uh, you know, the, in the 70s we had trizine resistance in Ontario that was fairly widespread, and the new new tools or new herbicides came along to deal with that. Um, so, like, if you look in, in soybeans, for example, the, the SUs, the Group 2 herbicides came along, like Pursuit, and they did a nice job of, of dealing with those triazine-resistant weeds, and there was a good good seven- to eight-year run there, and then then you developed resistance to, uh, the, you know, we had Pursuit-resistant weeds or Group 2-resistant weeds, and then Roundup-ready soybeans came along and then dealt with that problem. So, it seems that every you know ten to fifteen years, Mother Nature evolves, and you have a new problem. So, and to where we are at today. But I guess um, if we look back though over those kind of eras, we do have 
fewer species resistant to glyphosate than we did, say, for for group two uh, herbicides and then triazine herbicides. So, you know, in Ontario at least, uh, we have fewer resistant species to glyphosate than than the other herbicides. There are some folks that think that the adoption of genetically engineered crops has resulted in more resistance. Would you agree with that or disagree or what would you say about well i guess all i can really speak to is the ontario perspective and the ontario perspective you know if we look so um out of the university of guelph uh, francois tardif uh, since i think around 1997 uh, their lab tests uh, weed samples that come in from the field where farmers think they have a species that's resistant and he's done that testing now for over 20 years and and the numbers really don't there that the adoption of genetically modified crops have have resulted in you know more herbicide resistant weeds so if we kind of look over the eras right so um, when when the university started testing it, it dates back even to the 70s and 80s and there was 11 species that they confirmed resistant to the triazine so that's things like atrazine and sencor and then into the 90s and early 2000s, they confirmed 11 different weed species to uh, things like Pursuit, so the group two herbicides. And then so now if we look at this era, and the era is maybe not over, so it's it's uh, right now it's just a moment in time. There's been four species confirmed in the province resistant to, to glyphosate. So I guess all that to say we've been growing genetically modified or genetic engineered uh, Roundup Ready crops in Ontario since the uh, you know, late 90s. If they were truly uh, causing more herbicide-resistant weeds, then you would, you would think that we'd have more species confirmed than, than what we do. And we, we just simply don't at, that, at this point. So even in the areas where we didn't have genetic engineered crops, we had a lot of herbicide resistance. So uh, to me, that issue is kind of silly. It's, a, it's, a, it's an issue that has to do with herbicides. It has nothing to do with whether a crop's genetically engineered or not. I mean, that's kind of, to me, it's an absurd argument. You, know, you, you have weeds that are resisting herbicide applications, not a certain type that's being grown. We're actually seeing Mother Nature exert her own form of genetic engineering as, as she's adapting these weeds to the herbicide. So, uh, yeah, I mean, genetics as well. Sure. You know, you can vary, especially with something like glyphosate that's broad spectrum. Over time, you can select for that uh, rare mutant in the population that's already there that, that uh, is, is naturally either more tolerant or resistant. Is there agricultural economy has evolved, Mike. We've, in the last 40 years, 50 years, moved away from pasture and hay and multiple species to, you know, corn, soybeans, corn, soybeans, wheat, you know, in Western Canada, canola, snow, canola in spots. As we reduce the number of species in our rotation, does that give these weeds a a better chance, a better shot at uh, becoming resistant? Yeah. So yeah, the, uh, the quick answer is yes. I mean, you give a good example there of, of forages in the rotation. So there's a, a number of things forages do in the ro- rotation that are you know beneficial. Uh, one, you're not you're not using as as many herbicides in that system, maybe to establish the stand. But other than that, I mean that that ground's going to be there for three or four years. 
um, without that selection pressure of herbicide applications. And then also that forage crop is covering ground. So weed seeds need uh, light and moisture to, to germinate in a bit of disturbance, and they simply don't get that in that environment. So you know, there's an example of a crop that's very beneficial in terms of kind of naturally uh, suppressing or at least discouraging recruitment of annual weeds. So when you take things like that out of the rotation and when you become more predictable, right? Like it's all again about selection pressure and uh, um, you know, if you're kind of doing the same thing every year, there's a predictability. And then, so that's gonna, it's gonna tip the scale in favor of a certain population of weeds and, and more likely to kind of select species within that population that are that are tolerant. So, yeah, ro- yes, the shortening of rotations the um has not been an asset in the fight against herbicide resistant. But that's, you know, that's a market driven thing, right? If you could uh sell hay as easily as you could sell corn and soy and the market was there, then I'm then I'm sure more people would grow hay, right? So, Mike, can we then use cover crops? Do cover crops have a role to play in slowing down the development of resistance to herbicides. If we incorporate cover crops that intercede them, you know, seed them after wheat as we used to do, is that is that a way that we can? Is that a best management practice? Right. So I well, I'll give the example of of Canada fleabane. Right. So we have glyphosate resistant Canada fleabane in Ontario, and in some areas it's fairly prevalent, and then other areas not so much. And so I'm going to use that as a, a species to give an example why things like cover crops and tillage and and herb and appropriate herbicides you, you almost have to have that integrated approach to deal with a species like this and then by and large that will you know that it'll have other benefits but so if we look at that species so we have had a research trial in Delhi this past season where the population density so the amount of fleabane in that field was well over 3 million uh, plants per acre is kind of the density equivalent. So just a carpet of this weed in some areas up to 7 million plants per acre. So even if you're effective, even if if you do something like tillage, right, to try and take that out, well, what we've experienced there is is the tillages may be 90% effective at controlling what's there in the field. And so you're still left with 10%, and 10% of 3 million is still 300,000, so that you still have quite a number of plants there. And so if we and so if we have tillage that removes some, but doesn't remove all of them, uh, if we add a cover crop in there, it'll it'll whittle down that population even more. So there's been some interesting work done by Peter Sikama's uh, research group out of Ridgetown showing. Um, uh, fall seeded cover crops going overwintering into the next spring have had a significant reduction in the population of fleabane. You know that helps to reduce the population density, and then you use herbicides to you know, kind of finish it off. So I guess all I'm trying to illustrate is when you have something that can grow at such a large population density, it's kind of naive to think that one solution only is going to going to manage that effectively or or at least you're, you're setting yourself up to risk if you're only going to rely on one management tactic so the inclusion of cover crops to, to you know again it's not rocket science weed seeds need light 
and uh, moisture and a bit of disturbance to germinate. And if you're creating an environment where that doesn't happen as much, then uh, then that's that's good. You know, there's a bunch of interceding projects going on. Dave Hooker has some, Bill Dean has some, and even Francois Tardif and Clarence Swanton have some. And yeah, when you can get a good, like in corn, for example, if you can get an interseeded cover crop to grow in there, uh, you do see less less weeds uh, weed seeds being produced. So that's an asset for sure. Like when I went on the internet and just typed in herbicide resistance, there there's literally hundreds of groups and and sites that are you know studying this this issue. Every university that's connected with agriculture in any way has has some program going. You reach out and work with these groups. Like, is there a collaborative effort between? the research community? Yeah, so in Canada, there's the Canadian Weed Science Society, and then in the United States, there's the Weed Science Society of America. And so, like, from a Canadian perspective, um, you, know, we, you know, at our annual meeting this year, there was a symposium on, you know, herbicide-resistant weeds, and and that's where, you know, different growers and agronomists in the research community all participated and kind of shared their experience um, so, yes, I mean, the, the short answer is yes, um, because it is a, it's not a regional issue, it's a global issue. There is, there is collaboration, although, you know, faculty members and people in general have egos and tend to, tend to want to work, work on their own, but there is, there is definitely collaboration. There's certainly a huge amount of, of effort being put in, even, even the, the manufacturers, DuPont, uh, Monsanto, Sandanda, all, all of those folks, uh, they're doing a tremendous amount of work. And I was actually quite impressed by the amount of the volume of work that you guys have done on this issue. Uh, I hope every farmer knows that these resources are available. And uh, I, I guess today what we're trying to do is make sure that we can reach out and, and let people know that help is there. It's a tremendous amount of information that you folks have generated over the last 10 years. Sure. And that's that's nice to say. I think we're still, it's like anything else. So the, I think the challenge is, you know, how do you think historically, and, and it's human nature, right, is that you tend to not deal or worry with the problem until it becomes a problem. And that's just human nature, right? If I, you know, it's not until someone gets a heart attack that they start being concerned about their diet and exercise patterns, right? Um, so, you know, unfortunately, we're still very much at a phase where until it's real to us, so in other words, now it's impacting our bottom line, you know, there's a species that I used to be able to control and now I can't control it and it's causing me yield loss. That, unfortunately, is still the pain that prompts a change. And, of course, that's always been the conflict is the research community and the extension community has tried to advocate for proactivity, but that's contrary to human nature, which is effectively hard to see the incentive of doing that uh, unless there's there's an, you know, a payoff. And so the, the inclination is to wait. So that's the challenge. I think there's some things coming down the, the research pipeline that, that maybe will help with that. I don't know much about it, but there's being some work done in, in uh, the United States where they, there's different tools to kind of forecast and predict uh, the populations that will be coming up in the field and whether they're resistant or not. So things like that, actually, if we can make them practical and cost-effective, that would be a significant tool to motivate producers to adopt strategies that would, would minimize the risk. But that that's, listen, this is, it's always a challenge. This has been an ongoing challenge for 30 or 40 years. You're battling 
you know, there's so much to consider at the farm level, economics and just getting through the year that, that's, you know, unfortunately herbicide resistance is one of those issues that until it affects you directly, you're unlikely to do anything. But the, the good thing is, you know, the research community has focused on, okay, if it does happen, what are the solutions to dealing with it? And at least that's, that's uh, the first step. You have Mike Cowgill's uh, five things you must do as a producer to protect yourself, or is this problem way more complex than uh, five simple steps? No, I, I think, um, no, I, I, we have to make it simple or else no one will adopt it. I know, th- I, and I know some organizations have like the top 10, and I, and I think as human beings, we're wired to forget. It's very, very difficult to remember 10 things or even five things. So I'll, I'll give you two or three. It depends how good I can count on the fly. But to me, the primary thing is, because this will have economic benefit as well, you kind of look at your farm operation and say, what is the most abundant species on my farm? And maybe that's lamb's quarters. Maybe that's pigweed. I don't really care. But what are your top two or three? This is my most prevalent species. Because the numbers would suggest that whatever's most prevalent is at, at highest risk for you to select resistant populations, right? Simply because it's a numbers game. The, the bigger the pool of, of, of species to draw from or individuals to draw from, the more likely one of them is resistant. So you say that, which what's the number one biggest weed problem on my farm? What's most abundant? And then you, you then your arsenal of tools, um, make sure that you have at least two things working on, on that. So I guess very specifically, if it's if herbicides are still your main method of weed control, then it's like what can I put in the tank with that that uh, what can I tank mix together that have two different modes of action so that kill that one weed differently that I can use. And you know, often it's as simple as if you're growing soybeans, maybe it's sometimes as simple as adding something like 2,4-DS or pre-plant or Aragon. So something that's relatively cost-effective, it's not going to break the bank, but it's going to add value because it's also controlling that species that's prominent on your farm just as effectively. So those are kind of my two things is what is the biggest problem across the field and then adding a second mode of action to deal with that. And then probably my third thing, uh, I think the real missed opportunity, and you're seeing more of it in the province, and I think it's, you know, because I think growers are seeing the value in it, is when that wheat crop comes off. If we're growing wheat, and, and we should be because wheat's nice, like I know it's called poverty grass, but from a weed management perspective, it grows in the fall. You have, you know, you have a lot less different species when you grow winter wheat. But after that winter wheat crumbs are off, we we need to be managing the weeds that germinate and produce seed after that. And one of the easiest things to do is put in a, a cover crop at that stage, and it can be as simple as oats, right? Maybe you blend a bit of potash with oats and get it on the field. Uh, we we see significant reductions in species from doing that. So I've given three things. So it's knowing in, in a field what the number one or two species are. Number two is is having a tang mix partner that will ki- you know equally work on that those one or two species, and then three, uh, if we're growing winter wheat or soybeans, right, or even corn, can we put something on after it's harvested to give us some ground cover and to stop seed weed recruitment? So those are my three, and any more, and we'll forget. <laughs> That's pretty good advice, and. Certainly the corn silage guys have lots of opportunity to, to get something in and, and get that ground covered. 
uh, yeah, like high risk of getting a, a hug from Peter Johnson after that plug for wheat. Well, I, I'd prefer not to get a hug from Peter Johnson, but uh, <laughs> listen, I like I like wheat, right? Uh, for, from a wheat control perspective, like, do you ever see annual grasses in a winter wheat crop? And the answer is no, because it's it's germinating in the fall, tremendous ground cover, and by the time those kind of um, longer season weeds, the ones that need heat, uh, germinate, they're trying to germinate in an environment that's not hospitable. Like wheat's great from a from just throwing off, just changing up the dynamic of weed recruitment. Whereas corn and soys, I mean, those are relatively, they're kind of planted at the same time. Uh, they kind of close canopy around the same time. So there's not a whole lot of difference there. But I mean, if you're going to grow those and not grow wheat, then let's put something in the ground after those crops come off. From the Ground Up was brought to you by Selford Group, manufacturers of Airway, BBI, Valmar, and Selford tillage, seeding, and application equipment. For more information on Selford Group, go to selfordgroup.com or call 1-866-442-1293.